This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Superstition of Divorce by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 4 The Superstition of Divorce. 4. I have touched before now on a famous or infamous royalist who suggested that the people should eat grass an unfortunate remark perhaps for a royalist to make since the regimen is only recorded of a royal personage but there was certainly a simplicity in the solution worthy of a sultan or even a savage chief and it is this touch of autocratic innocence on which i have mainly insisted touching the social reforms of our day and especially the social reform known as divorce. I am primarily more concerned with the arbitrary method than with the anarchic result. Very much as the old tyrant would turn any number of men out to grass, so the new tyrant would turn any number of women into grass widows. Anyhow, to vary the legendary symbolism, it never seems to occur to the king in his fairy tale that the gold crown on his head is a less and not a more sacred and settled ornament than the gold ring on the woman's finger this change is being achieved by the summary and even secret government which we now suffer and this would be the first point against it even if it were really an emancipation and is only in form of an emancipation i will not anticipate the details of its defence which can be offered by others but i will here conclude for the present by roughly suggesting the practical defences of divorce as generally given just at present, under four heads. And I will only ask the reader to note that they all have one thing in common, the fact that each argument is also used for all that social reform which plain men are already calling slavery. First, it is very typical of the latest practical proposals that they are concerned with the case of those who are already separated, and the steps they must take to be divorced. There is a spirit penetrating all our society today by which the exception is allowed to alter the rule. The exile to deflect patriotism, the orphan to depose parenthood, and even the widow, or in this case, as we have seen, the grass widow, to destroy the position of the wife. There is a sort of symbol of this tendency in that mysterious and unfortunate nomadic nation which has been allowed to alter so many things, from a crusade in Russia to a cottage in South Bucks. We have been told to treat the wandering Jew as a pilgrim, while we still treat the wandering Christian as a vagabond. And yet the latter is at least trying to get home, like Ulysses, where the former is, if anything, rather fleeing from home, like Cain. He who is detached, disgruntled, nondescript, intermediate, is everywhere made the excuse for altering what is common, corporate, traditional, and popular. And the alteration is always for the worse. The mermaid never becomes more womanly, and only more fishy. The centaur never becomes more manly, but only more horsey. The Jews do not find it easy to become a small proprietor. He is finding it far easier to become a slave. So the unfortunate man who cannot tolerate the woman he has chosen, from all the women in the world, is not encouraged to return to her and tolerate her, but encouraged to choose another woman whom he may in due course refuse to tolerate. And in all these cases the argument is the same. 
that the man in the intermediate state is unhappy. Probably he is unhappy, since he is abnormal. But the point is that he is permitted to loosen the universal bond which has kept millions of others normal, because he himself got into a hole. He is allowed to burrow in it like a rabbit and undermine the whole countryside. Next we have, as we always have touching such crude experiments, an argument from the example of other countries, and especially of new countries. Thus the eugenist tells me solemnly that there have been very successful eugenic experiments in America, and they rigidly retain their solemnity while refusing, with many rebukes, to believe in mine, when I tell them that one of the eugenic experiments in America is a chemical experiment, which consists of changing a black man into the allotropic form of white ashes. It is really an exceedingly eugenic experiment, since its chief object is to discourage an interracial mixture of blood which is not desired. But I do not like this American experiment, however American, and I trust and believe that it is not typically American at all. It represents, I conceive, only one element in the complexity of the great democracy, and goes along with other evil elements, so that I am not at all surprised that the same strange social sections which permit a human being to be burned alive also permit the exalted science of eugenics. It is the same in the milder matter of liquor laws, and we are told that certain rather crude colonials have established prohibition laws, which they try to evade, just as we are told they have established divorce laws, which they are now trying to repeal. For in this case of divorce, at least, the argument from distant precedents has recoiled crushingly upon itself. There is already an agitation for less divorce in America, even while there is an agitation for more divorce in England. Again, when an argument is based on a need of population, it will be well if those supporting it realize where it may carry them. It is exceedingly doubtful whether population is one of the advantages of divorce. But there is no doubt that it is one of the advantages of polygamy. It is already used in Germany as an argument for polygamy. But the very word will teach us to look, even beyond Germany, for something yet more remote and repulsive. Mere population, along with a sort of polygamous anarchy, will not appear even as a practical ideal to anyone who considers, for instance, how consistently Europe has held the headship of the human race in face of the chaotic myriads of Asia. If population were the chief test of progress and efficiency, China would long ago have proved itself the most progressive and efficient state. De Quincey summed up the whole state of that enormous situation in a sentence which is perhaps more impressive and even appalling that all the perspectives of Orient architecture and vistas of opium vision in the midst of which it comes. Man is a weed in those regions. Many Europeans, fearing for the garden of the world, have fancied that in some future fatality those weeds may spring up and choke it. But no Europeans have really wished that the flowers should become like the weeds, even if it were true, therefore, that the loosening of the tie necessarily increased the population even if this were not contradicted as it is by the fact of many countries, we should have strong historical grounds for not accepting the deduction. We should still be suspicious of the paradox that we may encourage large families by abolishing the family. Lastly, I believe it is part of the defense of the new proposal 
that even its defenders have found its principle a little too crude. I hear they have added provisions which modify the principle, and which seem to be in substance, first, that a man shall be made responsible for a money payment to his wife he deserts, and second, that the matter shall once again be submitted in some fashion to some magistrate. For my purpose here it's enough to note that there is something of the unmistakable savour of the sociology we resist in these two touching acts of faith in a cheque-book and a lawyer. Most of the fashionable reformers of marriage would be faintly shocked at any suggestion that a poor old charwoman might possibly refuse such money, or that a good, kind magistrate might not have the right to give such advice. For the reformers of marriage are very respectable people, with some honourable exceptions, and nothing could fit more smoothly into the rather greasy groove of their respectability than the suggestion that treason is best treated with the damages, gentlemen, heavy damages, of Mr. Sergeant Buzzfuzz, or that tragedy is best treated by the spiritual arbitment of Mr. Nupkins. One word should be added to this hasty sketch of the elements of the case. I have deliberately left out the loftiest aspect of the argument, that which sees marriage as divine institution, and that, for the logical reason, those who believe in this would not believe in divorce. And I am arguing with those who do believe in divorce. I do not ask them to assume the worth of my creed or any creed, and I could wish they did not so often ask me to assume the worth of their ruthless, poisonous, plutocratic modern society. But if it could be shown, as I think it can, that a long historical view and a patient political experience can at last accumulate solid scientific evidence of the vital need of such a vow, then I can conceive no more tremendous tribute than this to any faith which made a flaming affirmation from the darkest beginnings of what the latest entitlement can only slowly discover in the end. End of chapter 4